Alright, welcome to this week's Extra Innings Podcast here at the Seattle Times. I'm Mariners beat writer Ryan Divish, your host of this almost weekly right now, sometimes bi-weekly, sometimes monthly podcast about the Mariners, Major League Baseball, and whatever else I digress into or go off onto wild tangents about. Um, we're going to have a little different show this week. Our guests are different. Well, our guest. I am very happy to have Meg Rowley of Fangraphs on this week. Um, this is something we've been trying to do, as you know, will be mentioned in the interview. Uh, Meg is someone I met a few years ago, uh, just in baseball circles around Seattle. She was working for Lookout Landing at the time. She's moved up the uh, ranks, I guess, went from baseball prospectus and now is the editor at Fangraphs, a site you should read almost every day if you're a true baseball fan. I know a lot of people get up upset or don't like the analytics aspect of fan graphs but look there is no one way to look at baseball and teams gms all these guys are looking at baseball in a way that fan graphs often illustrates so i think it's um instructive to look at that site read that site trying to understand uh some of the thinking that goes on there because that's what teams are doing and for me as a writer while i love talking with scouts and getting their gossip and all that other stuff, it would be totally irresponsible of me not to read places like Fangraphs and to embrace new thinking and new analytics as a way to uh, get more information out there for people to read about. So I got a hold of Meg. We were going to do the podcast a few weeks ago. The Mariners happened. I had some Seahawks duties to do, so it just didn't work out. Uh, And then Last week, with when I was in Montana, we did the, the, the podcast with Larry, but this week I was able to get a hold of Meg, and we, we did a quick hour on a variety of subjects. Um, I'm recording this on Thursday afternoon about 3.20. Uh, you won't have to worry about barking dogs or a landline ringing in the background. I'm in Tacoma um, working from my very messy apartment, uh, but this morning all hell broke loose on Twitter. Uh, rumors about Robinson Cano and Edwin Diaz being traded to the Mets started to permeate. Meg and I will discuss those. Um, from what I've been told, uh, there isn't anything close going with that. That doesn't mean it's not going to happen, but there's a lot of things at play right now for any deal f- for them to get that done with the Mets. I'm, you know, there's a ton of money that will probably have to be agreed upon in terms of salary being taken on, things like that, which has to meet approval from the commissioner's office. And there's also um, just the number of players, prospects, and I've been told that the Mariners are still weighing offers from other teams on Edwin Diaz, specifically the Phillies. Um, and I know that the Braves are still very interested. So I think that the Mariners, while they are discussing stuff with the Mets for a potential deal, they're not limiting themselves um, to other stuff. And that would be stupid if they did. It really would. Because, look, you have a tradable piece in Edwin Diaz. You need to maximize the return. And, and it's something I wrote today on the on the website is just attaching Cano to this deal, does that limit them uh, in that way? Does that limit what you're going to get back because you have this money associated with Cano? Meg and I talked a little bit about this and she gave some really kind of cool thoughts about it, like separating the idea of trading Cano to the Mets for Jay Bruce and salary relief or salary, and then trading the Diaz to the Mets for prospects, breaking, breaking up the trade that way. 
my only thing is, is like, is that the only way that the Mariners can move Cano is to attach Diaz to him? And is that their priority is to move Cano more than it is to get the, the true prospects back for Diaz? Uh, he is your best trade chip. I know some people think that it he have more value at the trade deadline. That's possible because teams are a little bit more desperate. But regression will start the day the season begins because he can have no better season than he had this last year. He can perform at no higher level. So his value is his highest now. Uh, I know other people have mentioned the free agent market. Look, Edwin Diaz makes 500000 this year and then is arbitration eligible for the next three even if you add up all those years, it would never ex- it would never be close to what Craig Kimbrell or even Kelvin Herrera is going to ask for on the free agent market per year. Like the total that you're going to have to spend won't be the same. So that's why I believe he has the most value. I'm curious about the Mets. Robinson Cano, when he was signed with the Mariners, signed by the Mariners, the man negotiating the deal for Rock Nation and at the time Creative Artists Agency who was working with Rock Nation was Brody Van Wagenen. He's now the new GM of the Mets. So he's pretty familiar with Cano. Uh, I think he does want to make a splash in his first trade and maybe getting Diaz, who everybody knows is an all-star closer, and then throwing Cano into the mix would be interesting. The prospects have been named. Obviously, I'm not a prospect guru. I don't think that the Mariners would get all three. Um, the outfielder, Jared Kalinick, is the prize. He's only 19 years old, but he seems to be a, a really great prospect with upside. He is just a prospect, but we'll see. I, I think that the Mariners will trade Cano, and I think they will trade Diaz. I think they will trade Gene Segura this offseason. It's just a matter of when and when they get the right opportunity. So um, that's been enough about me just ranting and raving. Let's get to Meg. And we'll go through all the stuff that I talked about. It's, it's a very interesting conversation. goes down a lot of different avenues from the news of the day to the trades of Mike, Mike Zanino and James Paxton. Um, the Mariners' issues with Dr. Lorena Martin. And then just the overall direction that the Mariners are going. So I hope you enjoy this week's show. And let's get to Meg. I'm really excited to welcome in our next guest. We have been trying to have her on the podcast for a while, uh, scheduling uh, the Seahawks-Packers game. The Mariners and Jerry DePoto seem to make that impossible. Plus, she's got a new gig that she's going to tell us about. So, please, happy to have Meg Rowley on the show. I've heard you, Rowley, Rowley. I've heard it said. I just listened to your podcast the other day, and it's I couldn't tell the difference. <laughs> Well, it's it's kind of a funny story because my uh, most of the uh, sort of parts of my family say Raleigh, like North Carolina, okay. and for some reason, all of my dad's children say Rowley. So your confusion is is merited. We're confused ourselves. You want to be you want to ram with Owley, and so I don't. Yeah, I'm, I'm Meg Rowley. Hi, I'm Meg Rowley. <laughs> well, uh, or Growley. Um, yeah. Well, don't worry. My last name isn't actually Divish. It's Divis. There's the H was added at Ellis Island when my grandfather came over. So. Ain't that always the way? Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, Meg. 
I, I think, when do you think we first met? It was when you were with Lookout Landing, or when do you think? It was a couple years yeah. ago, a couple, three? I think probably Lookout Landing, uh, so like 2015, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, I think maybe when, you know, Sarah, who used to be with Fangraphs and is now with The Athletic, did a, a meetup in a uh, very loud and crowded bar on Capitol Hill. Oh, yeah, and that, was, that place was crazy. Yeah. Who knew that there were so many baseball nerds who wanted to talk to other baseball nerds? <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird community. It's great, but it's weird. So yeah, probably 2015 uh, when I was at Lookout, and then I went to Baseball Prospectus that fall. So that sounds about right. So yeah, why don't you like, why don't you share with us your your trajectory from? Sure. Yeah, um, I I grew up in Seattle. I grew up a Mariners fan. They got me at just like that right perfect window uh, in 95 where you're like, baseball would be great in Seattle forever. What could possibly ever go wrong? Um, And then, uh, you know, school and work took me to the East Coast and then um, the Midwest for grad school in 2013, which is when I started being sort of engaged with Seattle baseball in particular, uh, on a more sort of regular daily basis. Cause when, when you live on the East coast as a college student in the early two thousands, you don't have MLB TV. And when you work in finance, you're at work at like seven 30 in the morning and Mariners games start at 10 PM. So I watched a lot of you know, sort of East coast baseball and didn't get a chance to watch the Mariners in, uh, in the postseason, as you well know. Um, but when I went to, when I went to grad school, I got sort of an hour, uh, of time zone time back and had a more flexible schedule. And that was 20, I think 2014 was when I was like back watching the team every day, which was a a really fun year, um, to be back and re-engaged with Mariners baseball much better than the like trips to the Bronx I would take with my fellow Seattle expat friends to watch the Yankees just kick the crap out of the Mariners uh, when I was living in New York. So, uh, and then when I moved back to Seattle uh, after I was done with my my master's degree and had dropped out of my PhD program, I uh, I started writing for Lookout Landing because Nathan Bishop uh, was looking to add some writers, and then from there went to Baseball Prospectus. Um, Largely because Rob Nyer had seen some stuff I had written at uh, at Lookout Landing kind of randomly and asked me to start contributing at Just a Bit Outside, which was the uh, baseball imprint at Fox Sports when they still put words up on the Internet. So um, that that kind of led me to BP. I think like a lot of people who end up um, lucky enough to be in full time positions, there's there's a good deal of of luck and sort of fortunate timing involved with these. So. Um, it just so happened that Rob saw a really candidly stupid thing I wrote on bobbleheads uh, and thought it was funny enough to think that I had something else to say about baseball and then um, was at BP for a couple years. And then in uh, December of uh, last year, uh, David Appleman, who's the CEO of Fangraphs, approached me about coming to the site and taking over the Hardball Times, which is our long-form vertical. Um, and then just a couple of weeks ago, Carson Sestuli, who was our managing editor uh, after Dave Cameron's departure to the Padres, departed himself to the Blue Jays. And so uh, I got promoted to a job that I probably don't have any business doing, but we haven't burned down the site yet. So my my reign is off to a good start, I suppose. Yeah. You go to quality, you get a quality education, you get your master's and you find your way writing baseball. 
Yeah, my parents are very proud. They feel like I uh, have made good use of of the expensive East Coast liberal arts college education that they hope to pay for. <laughs> um, I I looked at like I studied political science, but I looked at sports within the realm as like a realm of politics, which is super popular on the internet these days. It just gives you lots of fans and good mentions to talk <laughs> about that, um, but. You know, I think at one point in my grad program, one of my professors was like, so this is great, but like you need to talk less about the like the baseball part and more about the political theory part. And I think um, that was when I realized like, oh, this might be I might be going about this in the wrong direction. So uh, it, it worked out. It didn't have to. But I, I feel fortunate that it did. Yeah, I had a, well, I went to school for seven and a half years college. Um, I got a teaching degree in history and political science based and then I went to journalism school and even after all that my mom used to send me the application for the LSAT every year because she didn't think that my my life choice was very very strong so well if you ever need to persuade her that you've made good decisions my mom is a lawyer and I took the LSAT and my mom persuaded me not to go to law school uh so sometimes you know parents take the opposite tact on that one yeah well that it's good. So, um, what what are essentially your responsibilities of FanGraphs? So, I, in theory, I will be writing my own baseball words again at some point here. But we we publish daily. Uh, Jeff Sullivan, who your listeners have heard on this program several times before, is his his own um, his own dynamo, uh, his own engine there. So he he does his work, but I basically am responsible for. Uh, editing everything else that goes up on fan graphs these days. Um, and I, I'm very fortunate. We have a, a pretty great team of writers uh, that we've assembled both uh, before my tenure and since I've joined. Um, but I, I will, you know, I do everything from uh, fixing the, the rare typo, very rare, all of the copy is so clean and perfect mm-hmm. always um, to working with writers to sort of develop ideas and maybe, you know, find ways to, to express ideas. They already have a little bit, uh, a little bit better. And then I've also taken over um, hosting duties for Fangraphs audio, which is one of our podcasts. Um, and then, you know, once things kind of settle and I have been able to um, replace myself at the hardball times, which is, is coming at, at some point here, um, I will hopefully go back to also writing my my own work while I'm there. So you need that, don't you? I mean, you need that creative outlet sometimes. Yeah, and it's you know it's sort of a funny thing about I, you know we don't have to talk about this for too long because I never know how interesting it is to to sports fans, but it's a weird thing about about this industry because becoming an editor and then advancing in that direction is often the way that writers are rewarded as they do well or you know as uh, publications find justification for having them be full-time staff but that always fundamentally takes you away from your own writing which is presumably what they liked about you in the first place so you know we're we're figuring out the balance and I think as this transition kind of wraps up and I, you know, get my feet under me and uh, again, make sure that I'm not burning the site down on a a daily basis, uh, we'll get back to that. Um, But for right, for right now, it's a little more administrative and editorial based than I think it ultimately will be. Okay. So we're recording this on Thursday afternoon, about two o'clock. There was a chance we weren't going to be recording it because all hell broke loose on Twitter this morning. I don't know how early you get up. I, 
I don't sleep well. I was up at about 7.30, but I sometimes you just kind of lay there and watch the news or I was, you know, you know, more depressingly reading the the paper about world stuff. And then my phone started to go and get alerts and, and Jeff Passan tweets out that the Mariners are inching in on a deal with Robinson Cano and Edwin Diaz going to the Mets and all this other stuff. When did you kind of get aware of what was going on this morning? Uh, well, because we publish on an East Coast uh, schedule, my, my day starts very early uh, these days. So I was up around six and similarly uh, scrolling through Twitter to see if, you know, this this deal has been rumored in, in one form or another um, for, for a couple days now. Um, and so I was kind of checking in to see what was what. But yes, uh, we we saw a lot of tweets this morning. People were tweeting stuff. They had thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, including me. Then you know, including yeah. me. It's just so. What were your initial impressions of the deal? I, I think that um, you know, it's. I'm going to say a thing that's like so painfully obvious as to almost be stupid. It of course depends on what comes back. Um, in addition to you know potentially Jay Bruce on the Mariner side. I mean, the way that I've kind of been thinking about this, and these uh, obviously interact with one another and inform one another, but. If you think about these uh, deals as two separate deals that maybe are going to happen to happen on the same day, I think it helps to clarify some of the initial analysis that we do. So if we think about this as the Mariners moving Cano and I guess potentially taking Jay Bruce back and then whatever cash is associated with that deal on either side, and then also moving Edwin Diaz and getting prospect return from the Mets. Then we can look at the prospect return with respect to Edwin Diaz and ask the question, is that something that we think is a fair return for the team? Um, and, you know, is one side or the other sort of living up to our most uh, cynical understanding of what these franchises do, which might be a pretty cynical one. Uh, and then you can look at the Cano side of things. And I I tend to be, um, in my understanding of how franchises are doing, less fussed about teams having to eat part of salary, uh, which also means that I don't feel like teams necessarily have to move salary. But if you think about the Mariners in this two-year sort of mini rebuild or retooling or reboot or step back, imagination, whatever whatever we want to call it, I understand the rationale for moving Cano, especially if in, you know, 2020 or 2021, when they feel they are closer to contention, they then turn around and spend money on the back end. So if, if that's the plan, then I get moving Cano now because when they're back in contention, he'll be 38. Right. And he's still a valuable player. He's still a productive player. Um, he may well end up being, um, productive longer into his career as a result of the PED stuff. That's something that's still sort of an open question from a research perspective. Um, But like he's going to be 38 and making a lot of money. So if the Mariners move Cano, they eat some of this Jay Bruce contract in the, in the meantime. And then on the other side, move a player who, you know, Diaz had an incredible season. He is a dynamic reliever. He has a ton of team control left, but he is also, you know, 90 pounds soaking wet and throws a hundred mile an hour fastball with a slider with a really whip like delivery. And that doesn't mean that he's going to break tomorrow or that he's destined for Tommy John or anything quite so serious as that. But 
he's a pitcher, which means he's already at a risk for injury because pitching is just really bad for you. And he does his pitching in a particular way that makes you understand that there might be some risk associated with that profile. And you don't tend to build, you know, championship teams around relievers. They are valuable in this way that they can net prospect return for teams that want them. So I think if we look at these deals side by side, you know, there is some logic here, which isn't to say that we'll, you know, end up with the Mariners getting exactly the prospect return that's been rumored or that we're necessarily super thrilled with them cutting payroll. But I think that if you if you think of it that way, it helps to clarify what the rationale might be from the front office. And then we can sort of more accurate, accurately assess whether that rationale is justified. Yeah. Um, once they traded um, Paxton, and Mike Snino, which we'll get to a little bit later. Um, yeah. I don't have to pay any sad music or anything, but no. for Meg. But um, <laughs> once they made that decision to trade those two guys, and then Jerry kind of outlined the step back thing. At, at that point, you you have to, you know, you've already stepped your, you've already put your toe in the water, just so to speak. You have to, you know, go a little farther. And listening on Diaz was is important if for no other reason he's your best trade chip like you said the risk of injuries there and and, unless this guy is the next mariano rivera there is going to be regression i mean there is he can pitch no better than he did this last season in a lot of levels um and then i you know so i i didn't and the thing with cano once you know you're not all in then having cano on your roster and carrying that salary even even if you have to carry part of it it just you moving him seemed logical i mean once once you've decided you're you're these guys aren't the guys you want to go with then move them all do what you can to retool your roster because of the lack of overall talent within the organization specifically at the upper levels yeah Mm -hmm. i had no problem with that it's smart looking at the way i never kind of thought of this larry kind of mentioned it a little bit but the two deals the separate deals the cano and bruce deal as you know bad contract for bad contract You'll still pay out, um, and then you have the prospect return with Diaz. But the the problem is, is like if they're only if the Mariners are just limiting it to this package, if they're just not looking for Diaz, you know, shopping Diaz as a sole entity. I wonder if it limits your prospect return because you have this other albatross hanging there at all times, and only two or three of these teams around, two or three ba- teams in baseball could even be willing to take on half of Cano's money because people think differently now. They're smarter about right. how much money they want to commit to. Right, and and that's obviously where like the, the two trades side-by-side start to interact with one another. Is the money that's left on Cano's deal limiting um, you know, what they can get for Diaz? And I think we have to see what the ultimate return is from the Mets if that's what they end up going with. I mean, I think that my my uh, sense and understanding is that this is not the only deal that they listened on with Diaz. So I think they are trying to gauge the market if, you know, whether they've gauged it correctly, I think we're going to we're going to see once we know what the actual terms of this are. Um, but, you know. I, I I think that we're at sort of a point where fans have sort of been conditioned to think about teams rebuilding as this long sort of Houston Astros like process, right? We're going to be terrible for a couple of years and then we're going to go win a World Series like the Astros or the Cubs did. But we've started to see a slightly different model in the last couple of years, which is this feels, if it works, much more akin to like what the Brewers have done, where it was a short reset and then there was spending on the back end. So you had good prospects who were 
you know, major league ready or very close. And then you go out and strategically, um, you know, sign guys in the free agent market and say, okay, now we're ready to be a contending team. They still have to do it, right? Like we don't know that they're going to be able to pull that off, but as a, as a mode of, of figuring out how to compete as a fan, I would prefer that, you know, because it's, it's two years it has a clear end and it hopefully, you know, I know they haven't said this, but hopefully we would expect that it might come with some spending on the back end of it. And, you know, if that's, if that's what they're envisioning, that's, that's not a terrible approach to a franchise that, as you said, has so little talent in the upper minors and, you know, the guys who are in the lower minors who might end up being a little surprising from a prospect perspective are still a ways away. So it seems like a good way to jumpstart that, and I mostly, as you said, I'm happy that they seem to be picking a lane and actually doing it, right? Like there isn't a point to keeping the roster intact at this in this way once you've moved Zanino and Paxton. Like what are you doing? You're not going to compete with your best starter gone and the only guy on the roster who could catch him. So, you know, start to make moves here and see where it takes you. And, you know, hopefully they're smart or smarter than Twitter was maybe giving the the franchise credit for this morning um, and and see where you can be in, in 2020. I do think the, the one thing that we have no way of gauging and don't, you know, have any insight into yet, but it's going to be really interesting to see what happens when the Mariners window of contention butts up against the next CBA negotiation, which is likely to be very, very contentious and may well end in a strike. And that would just be, wouldn't that be the most Mariners thing you ever heard in your whole life? Yeah. I mean, given, given this last off season and the way things went with the free agent market and, and some of the way the agents were talking and the players were upset and then, you know, the way te- teams are trending now in terms of how they look at players and player value and and how badly the last the players did in the last CBA, I, I can't imagine that there won't be some sort of work stoppage. Because, yeah. one, I don't think also that Tony Clark is going to get it to negotiate this one for the players. I think they're going to bring in somebody else. While he may still head the Players Association, they're going right. to bring in an experienced negotiator to do this. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's going to we just have to wait and see what that's going to be. I don't know what I don't know what you and I are going to do with ourselves during that time. But uh, I'm going to go back to Montana and hang out with my parents' dog. Oh, that seems like a good plan. And also, I I do want to say one thing about sort of the timing of all of this. So if they move Canal um, and they are gauging they're sort of shooting for 2020 as a window of contention, by the time that happens, the only big contract you have left on the roster is Seager. And so you have a lot of payroll flexibility. You still have to use it, right? Which, you know, we have seen teams be sort of reticent to do at times, not just the Mariners, but across baseball to our, you know, labor point that we just made. But then all you have that is really expensive is Kyle Seager. And if Seager has any kind of improvement over the next year and regains any of his value, I imagine that they would try to move that contract also. So you might be looking at a completely, you know, new slate Mariners with a lot of payroll flexibility. So if you combine, if these deals work out and they acquire good prospects and then are willing to spend on the back end, that's a compelling way to try to contend. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. Uh, I, I like the Brewers comparison. All, obviously, every time, you know, it used to be on Twitter was fire everyone. 
That used to be the, yeah. the, the meme for teams, fire everyone. Now it's always tear it down and start over. And then they always use the Cubs and the Astros as an example. But at the same time, those teams, when they did that, the CBA was different. Um, your player acquisition in terms of the draft and the international signing were a little bit different, a little more flexible towards teams that were willing to spend in that area. And now it's it's a lot they've, – they've tried to – lessen that like you can't take advantage of a you know overpay a slot and try and 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 cheat the draft the way some teams did I mean the Red Sox did that for a long time where they would overpay the slot value and never really have to to deal with that um the one thing like with the Brewers they did have a little bit better farm system when they started this prospects you know I mean when you know trading with the trade with the Marlins and then signing Lorenzo Cain I mean it changed their franchise in one day you know, yeah. when you, you get yellow and low cane in one day, that'll change your franchise pretty quickly. But, uh, yeah, it's possible. Um, the one thing is, is they can't miss, you know, these right. guys that they're bringing in have to be guys. Justice Sheffield has to be a guy that, you know, he can't just that contributes and, and it contributes in a big way because I think that's another thing is it like if you've looked at past and it's not Jerry DePoto, but when the Mariners have had pieces or when they've tried to retool or revamp or get something for a player of value, they just haven't gotten anything in return. That's, that's significant. Justin smoke and Jesus Montero, obviously. Well, and, and the other place that the, you know, the, the comparison is imperfect is, you know, you have, like you said, the Brewers had more talent in their farm at the time that they were starting this sort of project. Um, and they also had guys pop that were maybe a little surprising to them in terms of how well they did. Like, I don't think that they probably like they're thrilled with how Josh Hader is performing. Right. Not mm-hmm. always tweeting necessarily, but like how he's performing, you know, Jesus Aguilar did really well for them. And then you look at the Astros, like they already had Jose Altuve in their system when this regime came in and sort of did the full tear down, let's rebuild. So you do, you know, you have to look and see like, is there a version of that in the existing, in the organization now? And I think we think at this moment, the answer is no. Although those guys weren't expected to be, you know, Jose Altuve wasn't expected to be who he is either. So, you know, we have the benefit of hindsight on that one, but it it does require a lot of things to go right. And, you know, when you, when you pick a gear and stick in it, there is a lot of risk because all of those decisions are are on Jerry now, right? And this regime is going to have to own the results of it. But they're at least making, they're at least striking out on a path that isn't just, well, we're going to shoot for like 85 to 95 wins and hope that that's good enough for a wild card that we'll probably get bounced out of in the first round, right? So it's it's not nothing, but it does require a lot of, it does require a lot of things to break right, and uh, we're we're gonna have to wait a couple of years to see if that ends up happening. No, it's a path. It's a legitimate path instead of just kind of meandering. You know, right. it's take one way or the other, but instead of just kind of dawdling, and and that's what the Mariners have done. Would you trade Hanniger if you if you no. if you're gonna make the trade for Diaz? Are you gonna trade Hanniger too? I probably wouldn't if it were me. I think that um, you know you're sort of always a little less worried about injury risk with position players than you are with pitchers, which isn't to say that like guys can't get dinged up. And I mean, Hanniger's had times where he's been dinged up since he's been with the Mariners, but he's, he's such a valuable player. And I I don't think that you look at him and assume that he can't age into something that's really useful when they're ready to contend. I think with Diaz, you're just always more nervous about pitchers, particularly relievers, particularly when they throw so hard. And like, 
I don't know, you watch him pitch and it's amazing, but you do kind of wonder how he doesn't break in half every time. So I, I get the, I get striking while the iron's hot. I think that if they hadn't heard trade deals that they were interested in, I imagine they would have kept him and then tried to move him at the deadline, which, you know, has its own bit of leverage associated with it in terms of teams that are contending really wanting reinforcement out of the bullpen. But I I understand why you would look at a guy like that and, you know, say publicly, well, no, he's he's part of the next core, but then privately be listening. You know, I think if they're looking for a pitcher who's sort of filling that role and a compliment to Hanager, I would imagine, I mean, you probably have better insight into this than I do, but it would be someone like Marco Gonzalez who, you know, is a starter and doesn't have the same, you know, violent delivery with velocity. So might be a little less of an injury risk, but I mean, pitching is just really bad for you. <laughs> like no one should pitch. It's wild that anyone chooses to pitch or catch for that matter. Catching is also terrible for you. Get beamed in the head all the time. So, uh, you know, I think that when they're assessing kind of who's likely to be part of that next core, I understand them saying, well, Hanager's off the table, but Diaz is, is fair game. Assuming we get a deal that we like. Yeah. I mean, I, I think if the right, uh, if the right, trade came along for Hanniger, they consider it. Um, sure. He is an everyday guy. He is a robot. Um, he seems to only enjoy working out and hitting and not <laughs> eating food of any sorts other than like paste and chicken, chicken breasts. Um, no, I, I, I like Mitch, but and again, he's, he's, you have value there. So if, if somebody is willing to, to give you more than what you were expecting, I think you have to right. do it. The weird thing is, is like you move all these pieces and say you keep Hanniger, you probably move Segura, D Gordon's gone in two years. If, if this doesn't go right, you know, cause Jared always said, if you tear it down the studs, it's a five to seven year process. Uh, if it doesn't go right, you know, two years from now, they aren't any better. And some of these guys flame out. Where does that leave them? Is it five to seven? Is it? Yeah. I mean, that that is the risk of doing this right they we are used to these working out and i think that uh we are used to them working out because they worked out so spectacularly with the astros and the cubs and then the you know the brewers are starting to see good return on on their sort of shorter plan but they don't they don't always have to work out you know um and and we've been kind of spoiled but if, if this doesn't work it sets the the franchise back another probably five years. And then, you know, you have to imagine that you go through another round of sort of change in leadership if that happens, because I think I would imagine that DePoto probably feels more empowered to do what he's doing now that he has the extension. But if it doesn't work, I can't, I can't see them sticking with him. No, he is. He has to be empowered. And and the one thing is, is he wasn't, the the ownership group agreed to it. That's one thing. Right. You know, John Stanton agreed to it. Uh, I don't think the previous ownership group, like Howard Lincoln and Nintendo, would have ever agreed to do something like this. They cut payroll in in two thousand eight, but they were coming off a catastrophically bad season, and you know they they had to retool some things. And they made them cut payroll and trim things way down. But this is a lot different than even then. Um, yeah. And, and this the, I, apparently this ownership group is on that path and i think it's smart because they i think nobody believes that they're better than the teams in their division now and and maybe they're you know if they can move cano and if they can move some of these contracts you know seager at mid-season it would it would be significant and then that would put you on the right path i mean at least 
even if you're on the right path, <laughs> even if the some of these prospects don't work out, you know, if they flame out or whatever, you you're not beholden to so so many contracts, to so many dollars in the future that they are right now. Right. And, you know, to be clear, some of them probably won't work out because they're prospects mm -hmm. and that that happens. Um, you know, it's some for some teams more than others. Right. For some, yeah, for some teams more than others. People will talk to me about prospect hugging, like this phenomenon of not wanting to let your prospects go. And I'm like, well, I'm a I'm a Mariners fan. So t tell me more about that. Describe that in detail, because I, I don't know if I can relate to that particular <laughs> sensation. Um but yeah, it, it, you know, you need you need these guys to work. Some of them won't, and I think that it's important for us, like if we step back and think about what our role is in helping fans kind of understand um, what's going on here. You know, the the unsaid promise on the other side of this is that they will use that flexibility to, you know, sign free agents or grant extensions to really promising guys who they help develop and that that'll be an important part of this because it isn't perfect. There's, there isn't a perfect correlation between payroll um, and, and your performance in the postseason, but it does help. You know, I think all we have to do is look at the team that just won the world series to know that like, if you spend big, but in a smart way, it can really alter the, the outlook that you have on a franchise, right? Like I don't think that the Red Sox regret bringing in, JD Martinez and even at this point they despite the injuries and how up and down it's been probably are pretty happy they had David Price to to throw innings in the world in the World Series so um, that's going to be the next thing that I think we look at after the the slate has been cleared and they have guys coming in and we start to see hopefully if it if it works the way they want it to production in the high minors then it's like okay who's the guy who's this team's JD Martinez who's this team's you know Chris Sale who, who is that guy or set of guys who are then going to supplement that core to advance this team into the into the postseason? And that'll be the thing that we, as as analysts and then for fans, kind of think about after this phase of their retooling, <laughs> step back. Once they've stepped back, they then have to step forward again, right? So, like, when that phase comes, we have a new set of questions that we will ask of the team and see kind of where their thinking is on on payroll and spending and you know, that'll be the next thing. Not to pat myself on the back, but I, I put it on the Mariners Twitter account pretty good yesterday with the step back at the gym. That made me feel really good. It was probably Colin too, which made me feel a little better. Uh, uh, Colin. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know if we need to have a moment of silence or, Aww. you know, do you want me to play uh, I Will Remember You by, was that Sarah? What's her name? McLaughlin. Sarah McLaughlin. <laughs> Uh, who, who hurt who did what hurt worse mike zanino going or james paxton going for me they both hurt because they're like two of the nicest human beings i've ever yeah. covered they're totally available they're totally willing to talk to you not even on the record they just like to you know bs they're good guys um and so that was hurtful for me for, from a job standpoint from a personal standpoint what about you from a fan standpoint um i mean I, I might surprise you with this answer. Paxton hurt worse. I got it. It really hit when the when the Yankees tweeted their Photoshop of him in pinstripes. Oh yeah. I was like I was like, oh no, I, I don't like this at all. They had to I mean did they Photoshop his face to make him look they, tougher? They they had like him and Tanaka and Cece. James Paxton can't look like mean and they like no. somehow photoshopped him into looking kind of like gruff and mean. 
Yeah, and but left the facial hair, which was strange too. I'm like, if you're gonna mess with his face, don't you want it to like fit your weird policy that he can't have a mustache or a beard or what have you? Um, yeah, I mean, Paxton was just such a that change in in his game was so incredible to watch and to to get to sort of experience as a fan. And that's just such a cool, it's just such a cool thing in baseball, which so often has guys who just fail because it's so hard and they never quite reach what they're supposed to do and they never get where you expect them to. And to see a guy be able to just completely remake his game, you know, and in a way that wasn't, it wasn't super complicated, right? It was it was hard, right? Any delivery change is going to be hard. Arm slot change is going to be hard for a pitcher. But to watch that progression, you know, I remember, I mean, you probably remember uh, better than I do, both because you were there and because it was San Diego, which is one of your very favorite places. Mm-hmm. Like that start he had in San Diego and he got shelled. I think he gave up like a, a million runs. I think it was the exact number. He gave up a million runs. But I remember watching that game and I was like, huh, James Paxton knows how to throw strikes now. And that's they were pretty- like hard strikes and quality right. strikes. Right. I was like, that's pretty cool. That's new. That That's going to change the outlook for this pitcher. And then he had the Cleveland start where he was he was still pumping 100 after 110 pitches. And I was like, who is this guy? Where's this guy been? This is great. So I, like, I will always, as a person who is fascinated by pitch framing and thinks it's really cool and who, you know, Mike Zanino is like one of the only people who hit home runs that you were actually awed by on the Mariners. It was like him and Cruz. He, t- the two of them are two of the only people I've ever seen send a ball actually out of Safeco during batting practice. Uh, and so like, that's really cool. And he seems like a nice guy and he does a thing on defense that I find really interesting, but like Paxton was, you know, Paxton was a, a player you watched and you're like, Oh, maybe the Mariners can go to the playoffs. They have James Paxton. Like, he would be great in October. This would work so well in October, and I imagine it will for the Yankees. Yeah. So. And talking with the, some Yankees people last year, uh, when when the Mariners were there earlier in the year, and it looked like the Mariners were going to be that second wild card and the Yankees were going to be the wild card, they were absolutely terrified of having to oh, face yeah. James Paxton in one, in one game. As the one guy said to me, he's like, look, we're going to win 101 games and face James Paxton and he's going to shove it on us for eight innings. And then we get to face Edwin Diaz in the ninth. He's like, all the Mariners have to do is score two runs. And he's like, and he goes and Cruz or Robbie will hit one out, you know, or not, well, not Robbie, but Cruz can hit one out, hit a fly ball out to right field. And we could lose the game because the pitching is so great. And it is true about, I, I remember that start because yeah, he got lit up, but it was, it, you know, it was better. And I, I'd heard that he changed some stuff, but you know, we, you don't get to see it. Even living in Tacoma, I didn't get to see it. And right. and the one thing about James is look, he's not graceful. He's not athletic. When he told me he played hockey as a kid, I was like, there is no possible way that guy should ever be on skates. But <laughs> when that, it just looked natural, you know, yeah. credit to Lance Painter for just teaching him just to throw it like you throw it to first base and, and all that stuff. And then also, I think not just with the the stuff 
but it was the mindset change and how he kind of became a little bit more aggressive and kind of have that killer mentality on the mound. He'd always been so passive, like nice Canadian guy from BC, but he got a little bit of attitude with him. And then to go with that, it was really fun to watch. I mean, I'd never been more happy for a player when he threw that no hitter, given all Uh that that guy had been through in his career to come back and do that and do it in Canada. I thought that was one of the coolest things I've ever covered. Yeah, it was. I, I watched that. Uh, I watched that game in a bar with a friend. And you know, when you watch baseball in a bar, you're like, you're talking to your bat, your pal, and you know, like ordering beers or whatever. So you're not paying super close attention. And I remember in the fourth inning, looking up and being like, I don't think that, I don't think that James Paxton has given up a hit. And so, you know, we look on our phones and we're like, oh, okay, well, you know, it's only the fourth. That's fine. Like, that's early to get excited about a no hitter because. I mean, God, we got so many, you know, no hit bid uh, notifications from at bat last year. It felt like every other day someone was almost throwing a no hitter. But then once the seventh rolled around and he was still working, it was like, okay, this might happen. And and then we cheered very loudly for him and freaked everyone else out in the bar who were definitely not watching the Mariners. (laughs) But we were we were quite excited for him. I mean, it's just he seems like a nice guy. And there are a lot of not nice guys in baseball. Uh, and so when the nice guys do really well and they, they're they able to sort of unlock something special, it's just really cool to watch. And and also, he's this sort of fav- one of my favorite sort of development stories um, because, like, it's weird that it took that long, right? It's yeah. weird that a, the player development system did not look at him doing a cartwheel on the mound and say, like, well, that might be kind of goofy. Maybe you should try something that isn't that, like this super extreme, you know, um, overhand cartwheeling motion, and that it could get fixed by someone just having the sense to say, like, hey, throw to first base. What does that look like? Huh. Maybe that's what you should do instead is amazing. <laughs> It's nice to it's nice that we we know so much about baseball now and like, you know, sites like mine work really hard to try to clarify what's really going on on the field. And so for for something like that, that mattered so much and made and elevated this guy's game to something that was all star level that made him a, a very coveted trade target to have it be something so simple that got missed for such a long time. I, I like that there's still that bit of. Of business that we haven't sorted out perfectly because it would be kind of boring if we knew all this stuff it's nice when we don't yeah i mean it's they're you know they're not all robots they're not all hanagers you can't just tweak them and even hanager had to get tweaked a little bit before he became a good player uh i larry and i mentioned this the last time when we talked about zanino i'm gonna list off some names here for you miguel olivo kenji jojima rob johnson <laughs> jeff clement uh kelly shopik those are people I had to watch catch Yep. for 160 plus games. Yep. Mike Zanino, and there's a former college catcher that was nowhere and never, but converted to that. What that guy did behind the plate and how difficult that is, like I respected it so much. Yeah. And I don't get to see that. Who can the Mariners get that will make me not want to vomit when I watch them receive a baseball? Uh, uh, Machete Maldonado? He's not bad, is he? Uh, He's all right. It's not, it's... Uh, Luke Roy's starting to regress a little, isn't he? The framing has gone way downhill. 
Uh, let me see how quickly I can uh, look this up while vamping. I mean, the the market is super shallow, um, especially um, outside of guys who are super expensive who the Mariners will not pay for, right? Like they're That's not going to be in deal. Like I would imagine. Yeah, like they're not going to be in like the Yasmani Grandal market. Clearly, I mean, although that would be that would be hilarious. It will not happen. They're not they're not goofy in that way, but it would be just the funniest thing possible for them to be like, yeah, we dealt away all these guys and now we're going to give them a zillion dollars to Yasmani Grandal. Um, they're not going to do that. Uh, let's see. I'm looking at Baseball Prospectus's framing information. So they, uh, well, Martin Maldonado was just behind Zanino. Yeah, they could uh-huh. get him. Although, yeah. And you could probably trade him halfway through the season anyways. Yeah, let me filter this for framing chances because I'm looking at some guys who did not frame a lot. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I, I would think that that would be a, a level that they could they could do. And he's um he's not bad. He wouldn't he wouldn't make you throw up. You would not be super mad about it. Um, My bar is not set very I'm high. Fascinated. Cause... Yeah, I'm fascinated to watch Gary Sanchez try to catch James Paxton. That's going to oh be interesting. I, they they got to have like a second catcher that they'd use. Isn't it the Romine guy? Yeah, they have the, the catching Romine. The one that actually gets to play? <laughs> yeah, I, I, well, although <laughs> Andrew played a shocking amount of baseball last year, as you well know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, they... This is a funny little uh, thing about the Romine brothers. They have made almost exactly the same amount of money in their careers, uh, which is wild. It's like within like $50,000 of each other. Yeah, Romine, nice guy. Really smart too, but yeah, not yeah. not so good at the baseball. No, he had, he had that one good catch that one time. Well, I mean, they don't really... You know, they never were going to play him very much in the first place. And yeah. Basically, they just wanted somebody who wasn't Taylor Motter. That's basically yeah. all they really wanted. And that, that bar is also not very high to climb. All right, is we Taylor have to get... Motter still with the Twins? I don't think so. I think you got DFA. Oh, poor Taylor. Yeah. Uh, all right, we got to get to this um, because I'm going to save the last one. Uh, but the stuff with Dr. Lorena Martin, yeah. from an optic standpoint... It's not been a good year for the Mariners. The the stuff about no. the sexual harassment um, and and those things, which had been lingering for years, people close to the organization had heard it. Um, the Mariners, uh, the lawyers negotiated really strong um, uh, settlements for for those things, but you kind of heard rumblings about that for years. The old boys club, the the three martini lunches from some of those guys, and all that. And then you have the accusations from Dr. Martin. I, I mean, it just, it can't be that difficult to just be a decent organization off the field in some regard. And yet the Mariners are struggling with that right now, it would seem. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where, and you know, I, obviously MLB is conducting an investigation. There's there's stuff being leveled on both sides, and I don't have any special insight into what, what went on here. But there's no there are no good optics to be had for the team here because their range of of potential outcomes is they uh they made a bad hire bad meaning was not an organizational fit now the ways in which she was not an organizational fit could be varied right there could be you know parts of this that are you know, she didn't communicate well or didn't craft the program that she claimed she'd be able to. There's also the part of it that 
is you're taking someone who does not have a strong baseball background by her own admission, right? Like if you read the baseball section of her book, it is um, it is pretty thin. Um, so you're taking someone without a baseball background who is a woman, who is a woman of color, and inserting her into a clubhouse and saying, you know, she's going to run the show, except that maybe you aren't saying that because you're taking some of the stuff that was going to be on her plate and giving it to someone else, right? So not a good fit, right? Either because she's not a good fit or the organization hasn't set it up so that she's being supported in the way that she needs to be. And then you are mismanaging that bad fit to the point that it ends in this situation. Or you've done all of those things and you said racist stuff, Right. So like those are your options seemingly and neither of those are good. I mean, you would rather that the them not be racist yeah. <laughs> to be to be clear, but like but you are still in a position where organizationally you you made a a hire that wasn't a good fit and talked about that hire ad nauseum, right? To tout how progressive progressive minded, not just in terms of hiring a woman, but like in terms of how forward thinking of an organization you are around injury and health and, and whatnot. And then, and then you, you just misjudged where that person was going to fit in the way that your organization is run. So, you know, that's, that's not good. Like I, I'm pretty sure, and people can correct me if I'm wrong, but like, I'm pretty sure that the DePoto insinuated that she was going to have like final sign off on lineups Meanwhile, Kyle Seeger's playing through a broken toe. Like, you know, it just the pieces never seem to quite fit the way that they were supposed to. And and I think we have a, a better sense of of why, although an admittedly incomplete sense, given, you know, what's what's been accused in their categorical denials. But it's not good. Yeah. Either way, you come off looking racist or inept in the front office and yeah. unthought out. And and I, I think that's that you're right in the sense that. Jerry DePoto sat there and bragged how he spent a year creating this job. He, he spent a year creating a job where he's essentially put someone with minimal baseball background above his manager and his director of player personnel in terms of, of authority on some level. And how did he think that was going to go? And also inserting someone, look, baseball players, the quick, the first thing you can get to the worst thing you can do in front of a baseball player is act like, you know, more you know about the game they will look they will quickly shoot you down and you know i think that's another situation she didn't understand the game and the players were resistant to somebody that you know came in trying to tell them what to do but didn't understand any of the things they've been through i mean specifically at the big league level guys right. that are 30 years old guys that have already beliefs in how they're going to do stuff you know you're taking talking to an 18 year old kid that you've just drafted yes you have probably a little bit more reach to them but I, I think it was just misguided from the start and it put her in a bad situation. And, and Jerry loves to talk about how progressive he is and how forward thinking and how smart they are. But I don't think that anybody valued, even before any of the stuff went down, but even before like they probably met or interacted, I don't think anybody in the organization, like from a player standpoint or the field staff standpoint, truly valued all of her knowledge. Right. that much to begin with because they weren't fascinated by it the way Jerry was, you know, cause they didn't think in that terms. Yeah. I think that's a really, that's a really good way of putting it. It's like, there's a, I think a, an, a sincere and genuine uh, sort of sense of curiosity that he has about 
stuff, right, about how stuff works. And there are teams, you know, um, there are a lot of teams that are trying to come up with some way to accurately predict injury, prevent injury, intervene on injury, because, you know, these guys have value when they're on the field. You want your best players playing. So, like, the idea of getting someone who can come in and really revolutionize that, especially for a team that was so – like just hamstrung by injury the year before you get why all of that happens and then why you feel compelled to talk about it because you do have this sort of reputation is probably too strong, but like people understand that you had an an injury problem the year before and you want to talk to fans and you want to reassure them that like that stuff's going to change. And you look at organizations like the Dodgers who are sort of famously invested in this kind of stuff and you, I totally understand the temptation to talk about a hire like that the way that they did, but anyone trying to tell, and I don't say this because like I, I think or know that this particular player was a problem for her, but like any person trying to tell Felix about his, you know, training regimen or (laughs) Kyle Seeger about not playing with an injury seems like they are destined for failure. And so you would have had to do a lot institutionally to put that person in a position where they were going to be able to do what you wanted them to. And it sounds like that just didn't happen here. And it's like a really, it's an interesting contrast to the way that they handled uh, Amanda Hopkins, who's an area scout for them and was the first female area scout for a team in like 50 years. They hired Amanda and they let Amanda just do her job. They, you know, were like, we're not going to have Sports Illustrated come talk to you. We're not going to put you on panels. Just go do your job and get some drafts under your belt. And then after she had done that, like she came and did women in baseball with me. And like then they sort of put her in a position where, you know, press could talk to her and profiles were done and whatnot. But they waited until she had done her job for a while and they knew it was going to work. And I think that they got out ahead of themselves here no matter, you know, what else may have gone on in the organization. And like, as an aside, this isn't a Mariner specific comment, but like you and I have been around baseball people and I have no trouble believing that like Lorena Martin was on a backfield in Arizona and probably heard something gross. Oh, yeah. Cause like that, that seems like it probably definitely happened. I don't know who said that, right. It doesn't necessarily mean it's Mariners personnel, but like baseball has an issue with how, casual some people are with racism that still work in the game and so I think that was the other part of this whole thing that was really discouraging for people was it's like well I don't know what happened here but I could believe that someone would see racism in baseball like that that seems like a thing that could definitely happen and that's not good for the game generally that's not a just a Mariners issue that's like a, a baseball issue so I don't know that anyone came away looking especially great in this, <laughs> in this one, but no. And, and there's really, I mean, and once it's thrown out there, you don't walk it back. I mean, even if the investigation proves that the Mariners aren't culpable or that there is nothing withstanding, it's not that they're innocent. There's nobody innocent in this situation. You know, right. I, I, everybody always sits there and says that everybody has got some level of guilt in this and it's not a perfect situation you know could the mariners have have made her assimilation into the job better obviously i think that 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 was you know they put her up almost in a position to fail and within three months of the hire they're changing her responsibilities and we were told that spring training not to write about the about her effect on injuries and stuff even during the season i had people say you know we really prefer not to talk about this because it takes time to truly understand if there's any measure of success 
You right. know, I know other people did, and that's fine. But you know, I and and to be honest, you just don't know. I mean, not every injury is the same. It's like people that sit there and said, you know, James Paxton is fragile because he went on the deal. Well, he got hit by a 95 mile per hour line drive. And contrary right. to some radio hosts who believe mm-hmm. that getting hit with a 95 mile per hour line drive on their forearm shouldn't be a problem. Um, it is. And that's, it's a fluke injury, you know? Right. I, he had two of those. Yeah. He well, had two could, DL stints because yeah, of that. Yes, exactly. I mean, you know, and one guy says, well, he needs to get out of the way. I'm like, I just, okay, good you know, luck. I, wow. Yeah. It's, I just don't, it's it drove that day drove me nuts, especially because one of the guys saying it was one of the most fragile quarterbacks in the history of UW. Uh, but I digress. Okay, so we've gone through that. I, I'm curious to see what happens with this. But like as I was talking with Larry Stone today on the phone, it it appears. I mean, the Mariners are staying with Jerry Depoto. They're letting him make all these deals. Like if there is yep. any any hesitation about his future within this organization based on these accusations, they don't seem to be you know, too concerned about it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It, it is a strange thing. Like I'm, I, I don't say that to like cast judgment on it, that it should be a different way. It is weird that with this, you know, investigation sort of hanging over the organization that Jerry is then able to like trade away franchise quarters, cornerstones, but I don't know what else you do. And I think that, um, you know, my sense of the investigation, I don't think anyone thinks that he's going anywhere. Right. I don't think that anyone, um, and you know, we could be proven wrong and they could, they could surface, I don't know, emails that show, Oh, actually this is, this is a pervasive problem. Um, but I don't think that anyone is, is assuming that this is going to lead to people being fired, but it is a weird, it is a weird thing. I mean, I was, I was joking about this with, uh, my friend, Michael Bauman, who, who writes at the ringer and like wrote a song about Jerry DePoto and trades. And he's like, well, we can't make this joke anymore. It's weird. <laughs> it's weird now. Like, he, we don't know what the results of this investigation are going to be. He's probably not going to go anywhere, but I don't know if I want to make this joke. <laughs> ah, it's all right. I made jokes about reimagine uh, on Twitter already, so you can do it. Um, yeah, it's. I, I don't know if the, the past issues with Kevin Mather, with Chuck Armstrong, uh, with Bart Wallman play into any future decisions making. If, if stuff does come out about DePoto or Service or Andy McKay or anyone else within the organization, I, I don't know if that has an effect. I, I In reading all of this, you just you just shake your head. And, and you know, the, the stuff about the Mariners in the past, it just was gross. It just yeah. gross. And, and, you know, you just kind of like, eh. You know, you have to get – you got to make eye contact with these guys sometimes. You're just like, how? Because right. in, in any other situation – if I did that at the Seattle Times, I'd be fired. Right. I mean, and that's the part where I, you know, so I, I don't say this to in any way downplay like the severity of the the incident that Mather had. But like, you know, this is sadly a thing that happens in a lot of workplaces mm-hmm. in this country. And the degree of of sort of punishment or severity can can really vary depending on how senior the person is and how their their value is perceived and all all kinds of you know gross stuff that shouldn't matter but unfortunately does that that he was then subsequently promoted is the part where I'm just like what he's not a he's not a baseball guy right he's not making baseball decisions he can't find another person who could be the CEO of a business side in Seattle 
aren't we lousy with guys who want to do that? Guys and gals, all kinds of folks. So that part of it, you know, I still don't think that they have sort of adequately accounted for or answered for, you know, that, that he's still there is, is not surprising that he has subsequently been promoted on the back of that is maybe also not surprising given when it happened. But I think given other conversations we're having now culturally, it, it reads really badly. Uh, and you know, it's just been, it's been a rough year for them and I don't know, it takes a long time to sort of undo that feeling for fans um, and for observers too. But I think that for fans, it's the kind of thing where you walk away feeling kind of icky, you know, and then like season ticket renewals went out that same week. Yeah. And it's just like, Oh God. And they fired Don Wakamatsu on Japanese appreciation day at Safeco field. Right. It's like sometimes I, I think that we, um, we sometimes get too wrapped up in like how good at PR teams are because in, in some ways, when they make PR mistakes, it's useful uh, both for for analysts and reporters and then also for fans because it gives you a kind of candid understanding of like who they really are. Um, but it is sometimes quite shocking. I'm like, you didn't think through like this part of this? You couldn't have waited a week? Well, and it's it's just like, and to be honest, I mean, like the, the Mariners have some of the best PR people in baseball. Yeah, they're fantastic. I don't think that sometimes the ownership listens to their advice very often you know what i mean because yeah. they but i mean like that should be like a front off i, I always joke with larry about this This should be a front office job like the common sense perception analyst analyst that right. sits up high okay you want to do this do you really want to do this now or do right. you want to you just hired her do you really want to go out and say all these things i don't think that'd be a good idea this right. is you know i mean because you have to think about how it, it's going to be perceived and and sometimes these people are so smart or so caught up in their own little world of getting this stuff done that they don't understand how it's perceived out there because they're not out there in that way they're right in one aspect it's like when howard lincoln of all the things i ever wrote about howard lincoln including calling him um uh montgomery burns the montgomery burns <laughs> of the mariners he was so taken aback when I said he had no concept about the average working class fan. I mean, I literally got called into his office at Safeco so he could yell at me and discuss how his blue collar roots. And I say, while saying all that, while wearing a $300 cashmere sweater, I'm right? Like, you, know, you don't, you know, that, that was my point. So, right. I don't know. Okay. Big last thing. How do you fix the Mariners? I think that it looks a lot like what they're doing with spending on the back end. Mm-hmm. I think it looks a lot like this with spending on the back end. And it's weird the 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 thing about baseball that I that always makes me feel like weirdly sympathetic for front office types and player development types is that you can have an amazing plan. You can have a super smart plan. You can make all the good trades. You can try all the good stuff. And like a guy will need Tommy John and then it's all screwed up. Or your best prospect slides into home plate and bends his knee backwards. Right. And now it probably looks like a ground up hamburger in there. And that's no one's fault. I mean, that just is a thing that happens because like that stuff happens. Um, So I think that it looks a lot like this. I think it it definitely involves smart drafting. Um, And then I think that it it involves having vision on the other side once you actually, you know, assuming you do, once you actually do succeed in in building some talent, in creating talent in the upper minors, in having guys who are going to be guys for you, then saying, okay, now we're going to go spend some money again. Because, uh, 
there's a lot of there's a lot of value in that, right? Like I said, like Boston's not sad that they that they signed JD Martinez. The Astros aren't sad that they were willing to take on Justin Verlander's contract. So that doesn't mean that you spend willy nilly. You still should be smart about it. There are lots of good ways to do that, but like build through the farm and then spend when it's appropriate and and mostly have a clear plan and direction. Because if they do, they can persuade ownership to follow that plan and they can do what they need to internally to execute on it. So It would seem that it's easier to make less mistakes on the free agent market when you're looking at one specific area. You know what I mean? Right. Like you're saying like if build your team up so I need this one piece and we're going to go out and look at the free agent market and find the best possible piece to fit that. Or like with the Astros, they were one pitcher away. They looked at it and said, look, we need Justin Verlander. That's the one piece. We'll pay it out. That makes the most sense. Or like the Cubs when they were on their run, you know, they built their player development strategy around position players in part because of the risk that is, you know, present in pitching just inherently. And they said our core is mostly going to be about guys like Chris Bryant because, and you know, he's had his own injuries. They're baseball players. They play 162 games. That stuff happens. But like we're going to have the nucleus of this be about position players and then we're going to sign – and trade for guys who are tested, who, you know, we feel comfortable with when the time comes. And that was what they did. And they went and won a World Series. You know, the Astros had their guys. And then they're like, look, let's go get Charlie Morton for cheap. Let's go spend on Justin Verlander. And, you know, everyone's going to feel good about themselves at the end. So, like, have a plan and a smart one. And then and then you just have to hope it works. Like, there is a there is some of this that is just luck and timing. And... You know, they can't control any of that, but make sure you have a good plan for the stuff you can control. Quickly, does Edgar get in this year? I think he does. And if he doesn't, we riot. <laughs> <laughs> I got, my dad is, my dad will have a cow. He's, because I told him I would take him to Cooperstown with me because Edgar is his favorite player, so. Well, I will, I will plug a piece that we ran at Fangraphs this week. If people are interested in uh, the, the very detailed Edgar Hall of Fame case, Jay Jaffe updated his, uh, his profile of Edgar uh, for Fangraphs earlier this week, and he had very encouraging things to say about how guys who sort of reached the threshold that Edgar did with voting last year um, tend to do in their final year of eligibility. So Jay is optimistic, and he knows way more about the Hall of Fame than I ever will or care to candidly uh so that that makes me feel like the odds are good that was a good get for fan graphs he's very prolific yeah jay's great so you got anything else you want to pump on fan graphs anything else you want to recommend any um, books you want to recommend i don't know just throw it out there. uh uh well uh for i know that most of your listeners are probably mariners focused but if you want to hear about other prospects for instance, teams that have them uh, <laughs> at the upper minors, uh, we have we have kicked off our our list season at Fangraphs. So Eric Longenhagen and Kylie McDaniel are chugging away uh, at the NL Central at the moment. Uh, Brewers list went up today, Thursday, and we'll have the the rest of that uh, division next week. So that's good. I mean, Jeff is always good. Everybody's good. I, I, I feel bad because if I name some people and not others, they're going to think that I don't think their work is good. Everyone is excellent. Uh, lists are good. And uh, we will write about uh, trades, Mariners and and others uh, as they happen. So uh, yeah, 
definitely do do look at the stuff from Eric and Kylie. They're they're very smart. They know prospects, and and I, I you know it's one thing I get guilty of is you get so fo- focused on your one team, you don't read about the other stuff around baseball. I, I do. That's like one thing I try to do in my off season is try and read a little bit more. Although I try to read non baseball stuff as well. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to have a break uh, when you can. And and I think you're right. Reading about other uh, teams and certainly other systems, it won't make you feel better about where the Mariners are, but it'll, I think, help put into context why the national perception of their system is what it is. Because, uh, you know, when you stack their guys up against other deeper systems, you start to really see, oh, there's, there's a fair amount of daylight here. <laughs> well, Zanino hit 30 home runs with Tampa. Yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> I hope he does. I, I think I hope he will. He does. It's th- those parks are lots of fly balls. Yeah, I mean, he is he is a great fit for Tampa. They love framing catchers. He'll he'll do great. I think. Um, you know, he plus like he gets to stay home now. I mean, he's not from Tampa, I don't think, but like he's from Florida. I think he and his wife are expecting a baby. Like, good mm-hmm. for Mike. I hope I hope the Rays the Rays are weird, and I think are going to be weirdly good next year. And it would make me very happy to see like Mike Zanino in a wild card game. That would be cool. Like, good for Mike. Are you gonna Are you gonna go to Paxton if he pitches at Safeco Field for the Yankees? Oh, for sure. <laughs> Will I, they do I, a Maple Grove? Would they do that? I don't know. Oh, I I uh, I cannot claim credit for that. No, but you know some of those guys. You think they I do? Yeah, I don't know. Huh. I I mean, he was very dear to he was very dear to fans here. So I don't know if he'll get a full a full Maple Grove. I would defer to the the great organizers of that. Uh, but I imagine his his welcome will be unusually warm for a Yankees pitcher. Certainly. All right, we've gone for an hour, so I'll let you go. But I really appreciate you coming on. we got to do this again because you make me sound smart by being on here. So. Uh, well, it was my pleasure. This was fun. Thanks for All having right. me. See you. Okay. That will do it for this week's Extra Innings Podcast here at the Seattle Times. Big thanks to Meg Rowley of Fangrass for coming on and and doing the show, talking with us for almost an hour. Uh, it's always great to get somebody different than just me and Larry because I think sometimes Larry and I fall into our little jokes and routine and we kind of go off on weird tangents. And I think Meg offers a different perspective in terms of you know working at Fangrass but also being a Mariners fan. Uh, she's a Mariners fan, and so she has some attachment to this, but a very logical attachment. Uh, so I thought it was great having her on. Um, I'm hoping we'll keep the guest list varied. I, I obviously I, I like doing it with Larry. I'm a child. I obviously like doing the show with Larry, um, but you know it's not bad to have different voices at different times come on just to to mix it up. But uh, we'll try and get something done next week. I'm guessing the next podcast we will do would be an analysis of the trade of Cano or Diaz or whatever coming. And also, I have to go to the winter meetings next. I'm flying out next Saturday. They start Sunday. I'm going a day early since they are in Vegas. But uh, we'll try and get one before the winter meetings. And then we'll try and do one at the winter meetings. So until then, thanks for listening. Oh, also, big thanks to Midnight Salvage Company for the bumpers and lead-in music if you need to get a hold of me as always our divish at seattle times or you can hit me up on facebook or on twitter at ryan divish so thanks for listening we'll talk to you again soon